I don't know how many bottles I have. It's the problem that we both suffer I, from. But it's but to the I point where ninety percent of them are open. <laughs> it's to the point where my wife is like, "You need to get a storage unit," and I'm like, hey, "Well, I got an office." Believe me, when you do that, you'll outgrow it. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. I'm sure many of you listening to this show right now, you're starting to build your very own collection of bourbon. And I was in your same shoes years ago. I would come home from the liquor store every week with a new bottle when I wasn't even 10% done with the bottle that I bought the previous week. And that same process, it goes on and on and on. And then you learn about limited editions, and that's when the hunt really begins. And the credit card points start rolling in, and before you know it, you have a bunker of bourbon. And on today's show, I'm joined by Fred Minnick, as well as Mark Rucker of The Bourbon Life, to talk about bunkering, and when can there ever be enough? We talk about the upper limits of purchasing, as well as bottle prices, and the folks who are now purchasing just for the pure investment purpose of bourbon. There's more topics that we dive into, such as tactics that are used by marketing teams to always drive limited releases, and how some brands are creating confusion to consumers. But the question still remains, will we ever need to stop bunkering bourbon? With that, enjoy this week's episode, and now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Ed DeRosa, who writes me on Twitter, Wanting to know, whiskey gift-giving, bottles or accoutrements? I go down this path all the time. There are a ton of things that I think make great gifts. Leather coasters, a nice Glencairn or a person's uh, favorite glass, a t-shirt from a distillery or a hat or something branded that they like. Those are all really nice lower price point gifts for somebody. And I, I love them. I think they're great There are a handful of things that I do not think you should get someone. Whiskey stones being number one. Whiskey stones are absolutely atrocious. They'll break your glass, they'll break your teeth, and they don't do jack shit for the whiskey. Oh, they make it a little colder. Well, that's cool. You know, so does a freezer. But look, I just think there's no substitute for a bottle of bourbon. Even if that, you know, the gift buyer buys you Wild Turkey 101. You know something? They're buying a bottle that you love, and that means they went into your liquor cabinet or they got to know you in terms of what you drink. So I, I think that you should really, really give some love there to anybody who who gives you a bottle that you like. And if they want to go out of their way and buy something special, you know, more power to them. And you also know how much they spent when they when you open up that box or whatever and you see, oh my gosh, look at that. That's a bottle of Pappy. Hopefully it's not fake. But anyway, I think there's no better gift for a bourbon lover than a bottle of bourbon. And that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you want to be like Ed DeRosa, hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or fredminnick.com. Send me your question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, 
Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Fred here today talking about something that we were joking about before we started recording is the fact that we are sitting on a mountain of bourbon right now between us. And we look at it as we want to talk about the, the state of collecting and bunkering and gosh, when is it ever going to be enough? Yeah, and and I think if you if you look at it from the totality of everything, and you like, I, well, you can't drink it all, you know. I mean, it's if you do, you probably will die. And I've been at this for fifteen years. You've been you're coming up on ten years, right? It's it's the decade is is probably past almost, but okay. yeah, it's it's you're, getting there. And and like you know, if you're in media, much like a much like a sports reporter gets uh, passes to go sporting events, you know, like the Super Bowl, we get samples. And so like a, a distillery will send us samples. And I have, I have tons and tons of samples, you know, dating back, you know, to 2005. And, you know, it was way worse when I was in wine. But I have so much. I have so much. And most of it is open. I mean, I'd say the vast majority is open. And I do share with friends. But the problem is we don't just get like, you know, purple top Willets and Buffalo Trace Antique collections. I mean, you get some really shitty stuff. And, most of it is. And and then, you know, I also I buy a lot. Let's be very clear here. I go to the store and I spend a lot of money on bourbon and whether it's for gifts or for our own use at home, it adds up. 
It sure does. It adds up. And I'll, we'll talk about that here in a second because I, I always say that uh, it's not a it's not a drinking problem. It's a it's a buying problem is what it comes down to at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But I also want to introduce we have a, a guest on the show today as well to kind of also share some of his experiences. And today on the show we have Mark Rucker. He is the host of the Bourbon Life podcast as well as the Bourbon Life on Instagram and Facebook. So Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Appreciate it. Good to see you, man. You so, too. Thanks. So we'll compare each other's depth right now. I think I'm sitting on gosh, it's gotta be like six to seven hundred bottles. Models. Fred, do you have any kind of like? Do you have any kind of clue? Well, on the low side, it's three thousand. <laughs> on the on the high side, it's it's sixty six thousand sixty five hundred. You know, <laughs> give or take three thousand. Well, <laughs> plus plus or minus. Yeah. The thing is, is like the small bottles, you the know, minis. The, yeah, like I have so many. I mean, probably half of it are like sample bottles, but also you know. I have indeed done a great deal amount of vintage hunting, and I do have a lot of that, you know, so I have a lot of uh, like vintage products. And then I also, you know, for my podcast, The Fred Minnick Show, where I send, you know, celebrities whiskey, I have to have a a, a steady rotation of stuff. And I buy things, um, I get things, and and it's like I have to have a steady rotation of about 100, you know, vintage and just badass kind of stuff. Or I'm not going to be able to get Jason Aldean and Ludacris and people like that if I don't have that little carrot to dangle over them. So, you know, it, it to me, I'll, this is this is a hobby for a lot of people and it's still my hobby. But it is it is very much how I make my living, tasting it, talking about it. And so I, I look at that collection and I have an office. And I've I have I've had an office since 2012 or 13. It's a commercial you know commercial office, and I've already outgrown it. And I, I need I need a new I need a new new spot. So. I will say there is one benefit about being on the side is that you can actually put your bourbon purchases as expenses. They're business expenses. Well, the IRS don't like, get too legal on us here. Well, my my accountant my accountant is like you know it's like it's cost of goods sold. But you can't write it off 100%. It's still it's still like a 50%, you know, write off uh, per my accountant. And when we were only if you could get it at Office Max, <laughs> I know that would be a great ticket to have there. But you know, it it's fascinating about like the accounting of being a a critic or like a journalist on the side because there's actually a lot of there's a there's a lot of uh, materials within the IRS about art critics. And so like art art critics from like the 60s to 90s were like buying all of uh, these like nice pieces of art and going to galleries and, and writing it off. And so like we've, we're in that kind of like same thing as like art critics. And to me, the whole accounting of, of all of this is, is interesting uh, because I look at my bank account and I'm like, damn, I spent a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> about you mark where, where does yours usually come from you know it, I've, I've started obviously a few years after you guys did so i've been in a, i mean i've been drinking bourbon for years but not as a serious hobbyist and collector and and podcast host only for the last two years but i'm probably over just over 300 bottles or so but when we created the podcast which actually the podcast we started it last year but my genius idea was that we would taste and review three different expressions during each show with our guest. And then you realize, I got to go out and buy all these things or just, they, get, they start they start flowing in or something. They start coming in the mail. So it's, uh, and it wasn't intentional. That wasn't really the thought process. It was 
originally the thought was we'll just share and it'll be conversational. We'll drink and taste and review. But we ended up with a lot of people sending us a lot of stuff. So it's kind of the same thing where we end up with bottles that just sit around and you open them for the show. You drink them. Some of them are good. Some of them are not Maybe not as not so good, good, but right. you got you got to put on a smile. Yeah, it's kind of how it works. Sure, but the, the really the focus of the day is kind of also talking about the state of bunkering and collecting. Granted, we're a little bit different because we're on the whiskey media side. We get some things sent to us, but there is a huge amount of people out there that go and and scoop up every possible thing they can. I mean, this is everything from uh, every single you know Weller one hundred and seven store pick that kind of goes out. Granted, everybody's fighting for VTAC, Pappy, whatever it is. When we start looking at this and sort of the landscape of, of bourbon, we know that there are, and I think it's really cool that a lot of people focus on getting store picks now and finding that variability because it's so hard to get limited releases. But at what point are you like, okay, I think, you know, 14 different Knob Creeks is probably enough. Well, you know, it's interesting is I, I look at this, like many things they do, I look at it from a historical perspective. And Maker's Mark created this. They they created the the desire for collecting. And before that, you know, that in the modern sense. And before that, it was the uh, the Jim Beam decanter series. So there has always been like a push from the distillers to to create some kind of desire to collect. But it's never been about the whiskey. It's always been about the packaging. So if we take a look back to the 60s and 70s with the decanters, you know, Jim Beam would work with uh, these nonprofit groups and, you know, get uh, commercial rights to build like a, a Corvette or like a canteen. And they would they would make decanters out of that and put basic you know decent uh, whiskey in there. And Old Crow would do the same thing with uh, the the Chessmen in the late '60s, which by the way, beautiful bourbon. And Maker's Mark kind of saw like how that created like uh, a demand for their product within the decanter world, and they did it in the space of of personalities. So they started creating a personality based bottle that would range from someone like uh, Rick Patino to uh, Bill Calip- you know, Calipari. And that would uh, not Bill Calipari, but uh, Rick. Yeah, John, know, John, John Calipari. Calipari. But, you know, so they would they would find people who were who would have like um, an interest in bourbon and also have like a strong Kentucky tie and they would build a, a bottle around them. And then they would do different waxes and everything. So you'll go into people's homes and they'll have two, three hundred of these special edition Maker's Marks. And so that's really when it started. And we're talking, you know, so this has been going on in bourbon for a very long time. God, I had to I think it had to have been what, maybe late 90s is like when a lot of those those Maker's Marks were really starting to come out. I think a lot of them were like UK basketball. UK was, basketball. Yeah, it had to have been the big one. The I mean, denim, the denim label that matched because UK had those denim. The denim jerseys. jerseys. Yeah. Back it, in it, the day. Horses, so. uh, basketball, right. anything bottles. Kentucky related. Uh, and that was, that drove a lot of them. And, you know, to this day, I have a good friend who his, uh, his, his grandpappy passed away. And that was one of his hobbies was going and standing in line at Maker's Mark and getting a, a bottle. Uh, his grandpappy passed away. And, you know, my friend Paul has carried on that tradition. And unlike his grandpappy, though, he doesn't go and stand in line at Maker's Mark. He calls up his friend Fred and says, uh, hey, man, can you help me get a bottle? I got to keep this going. So, but uh, but that it, it's fascinating. 
But th- that's where it started. It started with packaging. Today, it is not about the packaging. It's about what's inside the bottle. And there is a human element here that I think we all have to accept, and that's when something is so beautiful and so rich and delicious, you're afraid of opening it up because, you know, eventually it's going to go away and it's not going to be there anymore. And so you, we keep, you know, I, I find, when I have like a really nice, rare bottle, even I will find excuses not to open it up because it's like, oh man, I, I, I can't lose that. Like, I mean, I nursed a... Um, a Michter's uh, 25 year old ride that I swear to God, it was so amazing. And I nursed that thing for 10 years, you know, and that, and let me tell you something the discipline it took. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to nurse that thing for 10 years. No doubt. It's tough to, it's tough to go. I mean, I, I have the same feeling myself. And I know, and I wish Ryan was here because Ryan says it all the time. He goes, bourbon's the perfect product. And really, single barrels is really where that comes in. And so you go, I mean, Mark, you've done a few different single barrel picks yourself now. And you get these bottles and you're like, well, I mean, do I open it? Because this is one I picked and I'm not going to have this in my my memory bank forever now. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. And the first pick I ever went on was with a group out of Lexington. And uh, and I ended up buying two sets because they did three barrels. So I bought two sets and opened one set and I've kept the second. And I don't think I'll ever open it just because it was my very first barrel pick, but I agree with that, you know, and and I do buy a lot of bourbon as well. So it's not just bourbon that, you know, we get sent for the show or whatever, but I do go out and buy, I spend a lot of money on, on bourbon. You know, I I actually practice law. (laughs) So fortunately uh, I do have a a steady income that allows me to, to go out and purchase other bottles. So I think a part of it is for me, at least it's almost like a fear of missing out. You know, you see people posting pictures on Instagram or Facebook of what's coming out or what's there, what they picked up. And you're like, oh man, I've got to get a bottle of that, you know? So especially like the single barrels that you mentioned, it's uh, it's one of those things where you, you want to try it, you want to get it, and then you want to get two or three maybe to keep as a as a backup as well. Because mm. so. it, it, there's this idea in the back of your head of, well, what if it is that good? What if that was right. that that cherry barrel that I'm never going to see again? Or if, if I do get it, I'm like, God, I should probably get two just in case, just in case. And this idea it just starts compounding. And I think that is maybe the the disease a lot of bourbon nerds really face today is that you just want to keep on. It's, it's the, it is that idea of, of missing out. It is the thing that, well, I don't know if I'm going to have this again. And good Lord, like, you know, if I'm, I'm 38 right now, I'm turning 40. Like, I, I want to make sure I have one. I'm ready to retire so I can drink it forever. And then you realize you do that 200 times over sure. and and now it's starting to overflow and uh, and your wife's telling you to go get a storage unit. <laughs> well, you know, that might be your wife. My wife is like, you know, when I'm out uptown and she's grabbing that bottle, cracking that cork and, you know, pouring it in a glass when I'm, you know, so she's as much as a part of the problem as I am. You know, she is a like, oh, oh, wh- why don't we have any uh, maker's cash strength in the house? Where's the bookers? <laughs> oh, did you want to go to the office and get the old Forester 1920? And I'm just like, man, I'm just having dinner here, Jack. Like, can I just, you know, you know, so. But it's nice you have that person to share with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, when it when it comes time for date night, I, I, I love it. But, you know, the thing that, the way that she drinks bourbon is very different than me, but she still drinks it neat. And and it, it is it is a part of our marriage and it's a beautiful thing. But uh that that is a you know that's one of those when we when we look at when you would look at someone who might have a problem 
I would consider my wife an enabler and like an adder to the what whatever my problem is when it comes to bourbon. And, you know, I th- thank God I've been able to make a living out of this because this would still be happening if I was a if I was an HR director somewhere or something like that. You know, I mean, I would still be doing this. <laughs> so here's another question for you. So marriages are supposed to be, a, you know, 50 50 relationship, you know, we're supposed to give and give, you know, give and get at the same time. Does she help add to the collection or does she just kind of more take away from it? Um, yeah, I mean, I get nice bottles for Father's Day and things like that. Well, but it's awful nice of her. Yeah. I, always, I always tell people, like, just don't buy me anything for Father's Day. I guarantee you I probably already have it. Yeah, she'll, she knows to get barrel picks. And what she'll do is uh, she'll take Oscar, you know, my oldest, into a, like, liquor barn and and have Brad Williams come out and and say, like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to buy a good bottle for my dad. And, you know, uh, Brad you knows go. who I, you know, right. so he does something like that. Or go to Westport with K- Chris Zaborowski. Um, and she'll also buy me wine and things. But what she is not buying me are the things I hate, like whiskey stones, you know. So, <laughs> but um, that's, uh, that's the, it is, that, that part is amazing. But, you know, the, I will say, though, that when she has gotten special bottles just for her, it's like there's a fortress around it, and I'm not allowed to touch it. Like she got a bourbon women barrel pick from Four Roses one time, and it was like it was like don't touch my Four Roses pick. I'm like, what the fuck? She's like, she's like <laughs> taking markers and putting lines on it. Yeah, so she yeah. knows. She like, knows. Your, like your parents did when you were a kid. You know, they marked the the bottle level so they know where it was. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> what about inside your house, Mark? I mean, do you have uh, do you have a relationship with somebody that you you share bourbon with? There, yeah, my wife actually, and she's the one that really encouraged me to start the bourbon life on Instagram because I love photography. Uh, and as an attorney, it's not a really creative job by any stretch of the imagination. What kind of law do you practice? Real estate law, which is even more boring. Um, but I've done it now for about 27 years. So it's, uh, it's, you know, it's what I do and, uh, and I enjoy it to an extent, but there's no creativity to it. But I've been an amateur photographer for years. My dad was an amateur photographer for 50 plus years. Um, it's something I really enjoy. And I had a passion for bourbon. But my wife was actually more of a bourbon drinker than I was. So she would always get Eagle Rare or Woodford or whatever and have it around the house. And I would drink it. I'd put it in the freezer, actually. Uh, I mean, don't be wrong. We all started there. (laughs) Mostly in college days for me, throw it in the freezer or something. Yeah. So that's the way I do it. I'd put it in the freezer and then throw some ice in it as well and started drinking it and then just kind of developed a passion for it. And I think the really the thing that got me into it was back in 2017 or 18, my brother said, hey, I got a friend, he lives in Columbus, and he asked for a bottle of, of um, Blanton's. And I was like, well, sure, no problem. I can I can pick everywhere. I can pick that up. Yeah. And then I started looking around, and I'm like, why is there no Blanton's anywhere? So it just kind of struck a chord with me, and it kind of became this, uh, this search of where's, where's the Blanton's, and then <laughs> where's the other bourbon, and why is this happening? And just kind of natural curiosity, and it just kind of drew me into the whole bourbon world. But she was the one that really encouraged me. Um, she doesn't drink as much as I do, but she does enjoy drinking. So when I pour something up and it's sitting and I drink it neat most of the time, if it's just sitting on the counter, she'll always come by and she'll sniff it, pick the glass up, knows it. And uh, so it's, it's nice, you know, it's nice to have someone that supports what I want to do and that, and she knows that I'm very passionate about it. So it's, it's really nice to have that. So that's fantastic. So the other thing we think about is, you know, when does it stop? And I think this is also, it's a personality thing, you know, us being in really entrenched into bourbon. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's ever a thing that says, I don't think there will ever be enough. Uh, you know, whether you, whether it's a barrel pick we want or a limited release, you know, we're, we're going to go for it. Now that's going to well, be different be honest, than the maybe. average consumer too. 
Kenny, you were going down this path and you said, you know what? I, I can't collect enough. I'm going to start my own brand. It's true. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's you true. started your own brand to like, <laughs> you know, to, you know, to get that little uh, void taken care of there to make sure. Well, I mean, you're right. Now, now I have way too many. I, now we have barrels. Now you have barrels. Yeah, now we have barrels. Now we're gonna have we're gonna have thousands of. Now them. you have still time barrels. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, I guess. I guess uh, you know, my wife always says that I take it to eleven sometimes when I get into a hobby, and that's pretty much what happened. But when you also think about just the average consumer, I mean, they might have, and this is people that are really starting to get into bourbon. They might not be the the average podcast listeners yet, but they are the people that are really starting to say like, oh, you know what, I have a few different things in my bar and they'll have five or six bottles. But that's also kind of when the next bug really bites them. Mm-hmm. And they will continue to sit there and say, well, you know, I've heard about this guy named Fred Minnick. I know this guy named Mark Rucker. I've seen them on YouTube and things like, I, I think I... Maybe you don't want to want to try a, a different bottle from every distillery. And then they start down that path. And then it just like starts snowballing from there. But, you know, once we start getting into a point where you are becoming a more of a whiskey enthusiast, do you think that there's an upper limit of, of like something that's a comfortability level? Like is most people say like, you know, once you once you hit the bar, I think that's, you know, you max out your bar. I think you should stop there. And then some of us say, well, no, I max out the bar, but but now I'm taking over the bathroom closet. Once I stop, once I max out there, I'll stop. I mean, when you all think about it, is there is there a maximum point for you? I don't see one. I mean, I, I hate to say that. There's no ceiling but at all. There, there is no ceiling. Like I said, my basement is full of bottles in different locations. Uh, the people we bought the house from left this old baby grand piano and I started putting bottles on top of it. And now the entire top of the piano is covered in bottles. So uh, you don't play very often. Yeah. We don't play. Yeah, I don't, don't. We don't. Yeah, nobody plays the piano. So it's just I, I really don't. Because, again, when I see people posting pictures of bottles or if I know somebody that's doing a barrel pick, then I want to get it. I want to get a bottle of it, at least one or two. And um, and I just add to it. So I'll crack it. Like you said, Fred, the majority of my bottles are open unless they're backups. and then you know backups of backups. the backups well just in case and my my thing elijah craig barrel proof i love elijah craig barrel proof bottles so i will buy multiples of each batch when i can find it and now you're even more trouble because they're coming out with elijah craig barrel proof barrel picks i know they're coming out with the barrel picks so it's going to be tough to track all those down but that that is probably the one brand and the one expression that i will buy as many bottles as I can find to keep because I will, I will drink them. It'll take some time, but that's one bottle, you know, and the, the different variations in the batches is I really enjoy that. So I'll just, uh, I'll go back and, and that's probably the, the one brand that I have probably 30, 25, 30 bottles of. So, yeah, I think I'll, I'll kind of tail onto that one too. I think there's, and this is, again, I, I was in it pretty early. So getting access, I, I just, I'll tell you a hunting story. So I, I really got into bourbon hunting back in 2014. And that was a time I could pop around to every single liquor barn in the city and every single liquor store be like, oh, a stag. Oh, a stag. Oh, an Eagle Rare. Oh, a Sazerac 18. And I I would just pick them all up. Like I, I had the whole collection plus some just the first day of hunting in Louisville. Like it was, it was almost too easy. And I continued down that path. Again, it got harder and harder. Now it's impossible. But those are the bottles that I collect and I bunker and I will eventually drink. Granted, it gets harder and harder when you see the prices go up, but I will eventually drink only because I know that I'm not going to have access to those the way that I did before. And 
I know, well, God, Lee, I hope they're, they're phenomenal bourbons by the time I get to them. I, I think I've ran through at least three of the 2014 George T. Stags. I've got like two or three left now, but that was, those are, those are the bottles that I look at and I'm like, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to keep collecting and, and hoarding these bottles. I'm not going to get rid of them because I, I do want to save these. I think this is something that I'm going to enjoy later in life. And I know that these are the special bottles that I'll want to share with, with people as well when I get a chance to open them too. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I have noticed is that when it comes to folks' bars, you know, they have like, kind of like a real bar, they'll have like a well, you know, they have like a, a product. They just, they're every day. Knob Creek, Four Rows of Single Barrel, an Old Foe Signature, you know, stuff like that. And then um, they got that stuff that you just don't, they don't ever open. And so I think, I think the average collection in, in homes that I've seen are, you know, some, some everyday stuff and then a few special bottles and the, the hunt for those bottles is really what it's all about for them. And there's some people that are like, you know, I got a guy I call and he just, you know, I bring him some cash and I get the bottle. Or, you know, they stand in line and, you know, they tell that story. And hearing you get into it in 2014 and just being able to go buy those bottles, it's an interesting time for, for bourbon because that was when, you know, so many people were getting into it and it just happened so fast. And that's when everyone started you it know, felt like a hockey stick year. Yeah, exactly. It's going, whoop. I mean, it was a very important year. Of course, the year before, you know, Pappy started getting stolen, you know, and we started seeing a lot of that sort of thing kind of happen. And, you know, it was that that three-year period, 2013 to 2016, was just when everything kind of started skyrocketing and everybody started getting into it. But the one, um, the one thing that I have noticed is that a lot of people – are collecting and hanging on things in hopes of selling it later. That's very uh, true. Uh, as like, you know, financing college or, you know, a house down payment or something like that. And they're not really into like the idea of drinking it. And so that is, that is, that is one where I think everybody knows someone who's like that. And I think that's a big part of the, the collecting aspect. And I've been approached by your lawyer so when you have a, when you've got a suit, you try to get experts. And I've been approached by a lot of uh, divorce attorneys to assess a bourbon collection, you know, because they want to, you know, make that a part of the uh, the separation pie. Well, so I always, I always say no to that. Yeah, I'd be yeah. like, I'm not part of this. Yeah, I'm not touching that, that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I guess there is to a degree that people do collect and, and eventually want to sell. And, but that is that is the nature of the beast and that's the nature of what it is. I mean, when I look at some of the things that I've acquired, I've acquired because I, I know that at this point in my life that me being able to get these bottles again, whether they're, you know, like I love Van Winkle Rye 13 year. I think it's a phenomenal offering, especially pre 2018, I think is what it is. Like those are, those are phenomenals. Like there's stories that there's 20 something year old liquid that is in those. And it's just great, great whiskey. And I just know that I'm never going to be able to get this again. And I I get it. Like the bottle's probably worth, you know, 2000, whatever. But I know that when I get a little bit older and at this point, like I got it probably for retail. 
So I'm not going to sit there and just try to make money on it when I just know I'm an enthusiast and I'm going to want to open this one day and I'm going to want to enjoy it. But finding that day, that time, whatever it is, whether it's retirement, a birthday, Fred comes over and hangs out in the basement. I don't know what it is. We'll figure out a reason to, to kind of crack that thing open. The other thing we kind of look at the the idea of the hoarding and collecting is the ourselves, the media, we do a, we do a good job at feeding the beast. And that's because a lot of distilleries are creating press releases all the time and and creating uh, let's let's be honest there's a new limited edition release it seems like every two to three weeks and it's coming from a wide variety of distilleries and it's not just the big boys anymore the smaller craft distilleries also have to do this and it's it is a continual way of one always staying in media attention mm-hmm. And it is also a way of just finding ways of creating more and more unique offerings that they can add that keeps just people excited about the brand. So when we look at it, is the vast majority of, of distilleries out there, like, are they doing too much or, you know, should they focus on a few, few key profile things and maybe just like one or two special releases, not like every few weeks? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's point of sale Go Mobile device for a battle tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So when we look at it, is the vast majority of, of distilleries out there, like, are they doing too much? Or, you know, should they focus on a few, few key profile things? And maybe just like one or two special releases, not like every few weeks. You know, I, I think the more the merrier. That's my, you know, opinion on that, just because I think there's such a demand out there. And, you know, people talk about the bourbon bubble, and it's going to burst. But then you look at the distilleries that are expanding and spending 15, 20, $25 million to increase their production, to increase their, their tourism, to, to basically make it a, a wonderland for people to come and visit. And I don't see that, that that's going to stop. I mean, these guys are obviously investing for the long term, 15, 20 years down the road. So, I, you know, again, I, I think it's great if, if they want to do these limited releases or special bottles or, or whatever, I'm not going to be able to afford to go out and, and buy them all. And there will be that I'm missing out on this. Well, you just have to have an release. Amex black, I think is what yeah, it comes down right. to. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I, I think it's great if they want to, you know, if they want to release special things, I, w- I would hope that it would actually be something special though. You know, you don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of somebody just repackaging something and saying, oh, this is special and we're going to charge three times the money for it. 
I'll take a one there. So let's take one of the most recent ones, you know, as of this recording was Russell Reserve 13 year. You know, Russell's Reserve for the longest time, just a 10 year product mm-hmm. and adding on an additional three years. I mean, they've had these whiskeys sitting around. It's, I mean, you go to do a single barrel pick with Eddie and sometimes you're tasting 12 year old bourbons. So, I mean, it, and people were going crazy for Russell Reserve 13 year. Is that something that people should be going crazy for? Or is it just like that's just that's just yeah. feeding the, that's just feeding the animal. No, I think absolutely. It, it, it is and what's crazy, studies have shown if if you have an existing product like Russell's Reserve 10-year-old, let's just make that as an example. If you have an existing product and you try to like move it, you know, change the price or whatever, it it won't move. And and it's like with old old Fitzgerald Heaven Hill couldn't sell that. They put it in Larceny and it flies off the shelf and gets Whiskey of the Year contention. But it wasn't too long ago that that was just Old Fitzgerald, you know, prime or bottled and bond. And and, and now they rebranded Old Fitz and, and Decanters. And now look at it. And it was a 12-year black wax, little kind of sorty it, squat bottle and nobody really wanted it. Yeah, Nobody, that. nobody wanted it. And now it's like, oh, got to give me some Old Fitz Decanter. <laughs> but it it is a, it, and it has nothing to do with us, like the people who are like educated and the know about every little release, it's the kind of fray consumers who have a touch of knowledge and they they see something new. And then you compound that with like the turkey mania. Like there's a whole like, you know, division of like turkey soldiers, as I like to call them. <laughs> Shout out to Rare Bird and DJ. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because yeah. if you like, if you like cross turkey in any way, you know, they're, they're there with pitchforks. How dare you, Jimmy Russell, you know? And so it, it I, I joke, but it's, it's, it's a real incredible fandom. But, you know, so that, 13 year old is has been kind of like it's collecting the enthusiasm from all of those turkey fans and then there's a mass of people that have heard how good rare breed is and seen all this wild turkey 101 stuff and they like it and they taste it and you know master's keep has done okay but it's never really kind of hit and so there's all this conversation but for for that consumer who is like Man, I gotta get me some pappy. I need some. I need that uh, limited edition small batch from Four Roses. You know that that consumer, which there's a lot of those that they don't go for like the you know under thirty dollar products. They finally see a Russell's Reserve thirteen year old that's getting rave reviews. That's everybody's going crazy about, and they're like, I'm in. You know, so it touches on a move like that for a company touches on two things. It touches on the the FOMO people who would never buy Wild Turkey 101. And it touches on like an incredible fan base. And you have those two things and you can put out a 13-year-old with a price point of, uh, what is it, 300? Oh, no, I don't think it was that much. No, I got, no. I think What is the price point on it? I'm not sure what it is. I think, it, I mean, I, it, I think it was like $80 or maybe even Oh, well, Maybe I saw there. price three hundred. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about SRPs is like um, you. They don't... I could be completely off. I should probably state that I don't have the the press release on and, me, and so I don't why, know. We we've talked about this before. But that's why I hate stating prices in reviews is because 
It's uh, so the SRP is eighty. What's off for three hundred? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like oh, for fuck's sake, you know. <laughs> and you know the amount of value what you put on something like our pockets are a little bit different than the pockets of somebody that's in New York and on you know in New York, New York or anything like that, and you know in California and you know big oil in Texas. So uh, value is always uh, subjective. When it comes yeah, to and that. I noticed too that they didn't send out media samples on the on that. You know, no, didn't. So anything I always, that. I'm always well, and that kind of gets to the point where. It, you know, we feed the press releases, we talk about it, and they're getting to the point where they don't need us to to review some of that stuff, too. Yeah, but in, and that's fine, but I'll still buy the bottle and review it. So, <laughs> you know, if you, got a, if you got a shelf turd, I'm going to call it out. Yeah. And Mark, I'll kind of pose that question to you. You know, when we looked at, you know, Russell's Reserve 10-year, going to pick and barrels, Russell's Reserve 12-year, and they come out with a 13-year, I mean, do you really think this 13-year, I granted, I've got to, you know, be honest, like, I haven't tried it, so I don't know, but when you see it, it, it gets the people going, or it gets people moving, as, as Will Ferrell would say, but is it really going to be that much better than what you could get as a store pick or an off-the-shelf Russell Reserve 10-year? I would probably, I would say probably not. I mean, I, I can't imagine there's going to be that significant of a difference between those two, but again, like Fred said, you've got those people, the soldiers, the turkey soldiers that are going to be like, hey, it's it's turkey, I'm buying it. And then you're going to get the people that are, they fear that I'm going to miss out on this bottle and they see it. I mean, if you get on Instagram right now or any time in the past and look, looked at that bottle, I mean, you'll see it everywhere and people talking about it. So, you know, I, I think they're they're playing to those, to those people, like you said, Fred, that I can't imagine between what's in the 10 year right now and that 13 that there's going to be that significant of a difference, but you know, Knob Creek, I guess did the same thing. They've got the 12 year old, they got the 15 year old. Yeah. But Knob Creek, it's, it's fascinating to me. Knob Creek doesn't move the needle with like the FOMO people like picture. And you know, it's, it's, it tends to be like a kind of an insider's bourbon at this point. But I think, you know, when we're talking about, I I think, I think Russell's reserve, that 13 year old, I think indeed it can taste, I think it can taste better. And I think it probably can taste you know, be better than a lot of those things because there's a lot of complexity in those warehouses. There's a lot of things happening at Turkey that we don't see in a lot of other distilleries. One where I am perplexed as to how they continue to put out different uh, expressions is Old Forester. In Old Forester, they put out a new single barrel or whatever, and they sell it in their gift shop. And it's gone. Gone. 10 seconds. And like, and you know, and that one, a lot of those will have like the worst reviews. I remember, and I had, you know, I had, you know, I did a, a, a thing with Jackie and, you know, she had me taste and I was like, I was like, I'm sorry, Jackie, I don't like this. And I was like, and she was like, and it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. There's a fandom with that, with that brand. Uh, people will go and get it. And they've done a really good job of capturing that. And they do it through their gift shop, which is a little bit more unique. Yeah, it's one way to kind of target the consumers is going through that way. And and to kind of also take your take a step back when you're talking about Knob Creek, I think everybody that is in the bourbon knows that the Knob Creek 12 and the Knob Creek 15 years that came out were actually pretty damn good products. They're amazing. They're really good products. And then they're, you know, usually a step above. They're you're definitely your your off-the-shelf offering. Now I know that a lot of people in the whiskey world were kind of kind of mad a little bit because now we we all know that the days of getting Knob Creek store picks or single barrel picks of 13, 15, 
12 years is gone because all that is going towards this new core offering. But I think what Knob Creek does very well there is that when you go and you get a, a store pick, it's usually like 120 proof, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's got some fire behind it. And when you get the 12 and the 15 year, I don't know about you all, but when I tasted it, it's not 120 proof. It's like, what, 101, 105? And it was perfectly balanced. Yeah. And and so they did a really good job of creating a a particular blend and proof of everything that that came out that that actually worked. And it wasn't just... Okay, well, and again, forgive me for not knowing. It's like I'll just look, I'll just poke at Russell's Reserve. But it's like, okay, Russell's Reserve, same exact thing, 110 NCF. We're just going to add a, a 13 on it, right? And so that's a little bit different where they were messing with the proofs and trying to create something that was a little bit different than just another different age statement, I guess you could say. Hmm. Yeah, I keep going to this. I'm more accepting of a of a of a turkey edition. And the Knob Creeks with how they changed it, the 12 and the and the 15. By the way, both of those did exceptionally well in both of my, you know, whiskey of the year and in like breaking bourbons. Uh, and they've scored very well everywhere. The Wellers, though, you know, like we have a 90 proof, we have a, a 107 proof, we have a... <laughs> You know, but that's all. I mean, we got a purple label, we got, we got an purple, orange label, we got pumpkin, we got all, pumpkin spice, we got a blue label. Yeah, that one's that one's not real. <laughs> but I'm waiting for key lime pie. Yeah. So for those who don't know, there's like uh, there's some uh, fancy internet Photoshop work of a sure, right. of a TTB label for Weller with pumpkin spice. Uh, you know, the Wellers and the Old Foresters that just really do change proof, and like they have a different label. I mean, that's just to me, that's just weird. And and that's true. I mean, and Mark, I kind of get your your idea on that too. I mean, don't be wrong, like. It, a lot, of, a lot of Weller is some some good product. I'll hold and say that I've still never been a fan of the Green Label Special Reserve, but a lot of people are, and they use it as their sort of well product. When we think about the different <laughs> the different labels of Weller, you got the white CYPB, you got the Weller Foolproof and the blue. Is that is that feeding the animal of of creating this thing of people's got they got to go out and they got to get it they got to bunker it down yeah I, that mm-hmm. that brand specifically I think definitely and not, nothing against Weller because I enjoy 107 um, I use the green label in my hot toddies it's a it's a great mixer uh, I have several handles that I always have around for that purpose but you know the 107 the 114 foolproof the CY I've n- never had the CYPB the 12 year old. I mean, the 12 year old is a little bit different. I think you're getting into that older range. I do enjoy sipping on that one. But yeah, I mean, they, they came out with the white label. Then they did the, the was this the orange label? Is that a single? What is that? Oh, uh, that was the single barrel. Yeah. Single barrel. Yeah, well, a single so, barrel, which is kind of weird. It's like, you already have Weller 107 single barrels, but you're right. going to go ahead and, and, yeah. and create, foolproof single barrels. Yeah. And you're going to create a whole line uh, and it's only one single barrel and people are just going to, I mean. But it's their single barrel. It's yeah. their. Yes. But and but I've had some really good foolproof single barrels that I've I've really enjoyed. But I think in general, it's just hey, let's let's create a new label. Let's create some type of some type of tweak to the to whatever it is, and we'll put out another bottle. And I think that that really is feeding into the whole. It's Weller. I've got to have it. And to to, to their, I guess benefit. I will say it is cool to have like maybe like two or three different offerings like I, I was cool with with you know 107 12 and foolproof because you get a really good variety of range right sure. there and then you get to like cypb and 
you get this whole like it's like an online people voting of mm-hmm. oh everybody wanted five to seven year old weeded and it was like ah, okay well, like we never really saw the results of that data but we'll we'll put some trust you know in what's you. it's fascinating is like they've oversaturated themselves and yet everyone still buys them and i look at like other brands that I think a brand that does a really, really good job of having many labels within its portfolio under one brand is Michter's. Michter's does a really, really, really good job of separating uh, the rye from the sour mash from the bourbon and the toasted. And like, and, and it's a it, it's a simple label, but it's also their marketing around it and their callouts to it. And there's an understanding. Um, you know, the rye is not the sour mash, and there's an understanding there. I mean, I, even though I cover it, I am sincerely confused by the old foresters and the Wellers. And it, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of separation there. Another brand that I think does a really, really good job, and they're relatively new to the scene, is is, is uh, Wilderness Trail. You know, they have like, um, um, you know, they have their weeded recipe, they have their rye recipe, they have bottled and bond, they have cast drink, and they have, they have all these things. And yet, when I look on the label, I'm not, I'm not confused, but... And I think maybe it's because Old Forester and Weller have made so many changes in a short amount of time that it hasn't been enough time for us to process them necessarily. And also the changes to me don't really warrant a new a new label and or, or a new extension. And they both changed their packaging in a relatively short amount of time as well. So it's to me, it's these are their business decisions that are made to move more product. And, you know, they just, they can justify it like, well, we think some people like to have it at 100 proof and some people like to have it at caching. I mean, they justify it however they're going to justify 100, it. 100, 105, 108, <laughs> 112. Or just gonna come out with all of them and be like, you got to collect them all. So do you guys see that as a disservice then, do you think, to the consumer? Is that is that strategy? I don't think so. I think it's, it's like I said earlier, it's just one of those things that you have to continually be getting attention. And if you become complacent and you you don't see any news or media attention about it, I mean, God, how many repackaging designs have we seen of Wild Turkey 101 in the past five or six years? Four of them? Like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot. And they're trying to do that to just continually stay in media attention. Well, you know, if you want to go back to the 90s on that one, I mean, they, they, can't, they can't figure out what bottle they want to put it in, but... <laughs> But they, that has, that is always, Those Italians. I mean, it's always changing. You know, it's funny because Campari has been in the same damn bottle for, you know, kajillion years, which is, you know, the name of the parent company, which they have a, a, a aperitif kind of liqueur, bitterness, bitter. But anyway, I, yeah, I mean, wild turkeys, I don't, I, I think that that's a, I don't think they inherently do things to get media attention. I think they do it to, increase skews in stores because if you can have if you can have if you can get one more skew on that shelf you're you're cornering out someone who could be there so if i ha- if i have an opportunity to have five wild turkey slots well you know what that new craft distiller that has one really nice one on the rise you know what spirits of french lake eh, we're gonna go ahead and bump you here we're a store a family-owned store and we got to go with what people want and you know, we want to give you a shot, but just not enough room on the shelf because they got to have those four wild turkeys there. They got to have the five wellers there, assuming they can get them. They have to have those five old foresters. Walk into any liquor store, any liquor store, and you can see the distiller strategies playing out. 
Heaven Hill does it with like a lower price point. So J.W. Dant, J.T.S. Brown, uh, Heaven Hill, Evan But most Williams. people would consider, oh, the best of bottom shelf, but you're totally right. They own that shelf, like whether it's McKenna or whatever. And, and, they, and it doesn't matter what market you're in, they can penetrate that market. And uh, Evan Williams, which is their is the fastest growing bourbon and their leading product, is it will will dominate a shelf with a black label, white label, uh, and dif- different sizes. And so you know they will have that shelf. Uh, Woodford Reserve Maker's Mark now Maker's Mark now has you know many SKUs. There was a time that the the entire shelf would be Maker's Mark, but as the market changed, makers saw it had to advance and change with the times. And so they created 46 and then cash drink. And now they have a three hole space and sometimes four if there's a store pick in the rotation, maybe five if they're carrying a limited edition product. But so everything is done with the liquor store, with the liquor store shelf in mind. If you go into these like parent companies where the fancy MBAs are that may not have much uh, experience in bourbon, the people who are making the decisions and dictating it to the distillers, because make no doubts about it, Jimmy Russell and and like uh, you know the distillers. They are not making these decisions. MBAs who decide, these are the people who are deciding after having conversations with Total Wine, Bevmo, that's where the decisions are being made. And inside their parent companies, they have liquor stores built out with all their competitors on the shelf. And all they do is think about how can they get that bottle off and their bottle there. And so all these decisions are based on that. So Mark, you know what we learned today? There's no ceiling. It's just it's, <laughs> it's, cheers to that. You're just yeah, going to keep yeah. bunkering. Everybody's going to keep buying. And, and, and hopefully so. Don't get me wrong. We are still in the, in the bourbon renaissance and, and the, the, the heyday of it. And, and hopefully we get to still see this come for, for years from now. And, and if you are listening to this, believe me, you're, you're one of us as well. So if you're collecting and you're bunkering, don't feel bad. And we have a self-help group every Thursday. We meet at <laughs> 9 o'clock. Actually, it's probably Thursdays at 6.30 when this is released, right? So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like, we really could create, like, a support group. You know, I went into uh, my family liquor store the other day, and they didn't have Blantons. <laughs> and they, were, they had Blantons there three years ago for me, and now they don't. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Well, Mark, I want to say thank you again for for coming on the show today. It was a real pleasure to have you. So if anybody wants to learn more about, you know, you and follow your podcast and your Instagram, kind of tell everybody how they do that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we've got a website, thebourbonlife.net. We also obviously on Instagram, which is just The Bourbon Life, and then the podcast, The Bourbon Life on all the major platforms that are that are out there. Well, awesome. So make sure you subscribe to Mark. Thank you. Subscribe to Fred over here on his YouTube channels and also subscribe to, well, you're probably already subscribed to us, but make sure you uh, you share it with a friend, write a review because that's the best way you share bourbon and you share bourbon podcasts. It helps with the, uh, the algorithm overlords. It does. It does. And we definitely appreciate it as well. Whether it's good reviews or bad reviews, we can take it. But again, thank you all so much for tuning in and we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Cheers.